I'm Mike Hawks. And I'm Kevin Spangenberg. Welcome to In Between Charges, the perfect podcast to listen to whilst waiting for your EV to charge. Today, we have a special edition episode. We do not have any guests joining us, but instead, we will be taking questions from listeners. So we crowdsourced questions from our many listeners, Mike, and uh, I think we got some good ones. We're going to kind of go back and forth. I'll ask you a couple, you ask me a couple, and uh, I think it should be a good episode. Cool. Let's jump right in. We got a wide range of questions covering the EV sector, uh, a little bit of range anxiety discussion, as I think is maybe obligatory by now when it comes to EVs, uh, some batteries, and uh, and much more. So, Mike, let's dive right in. You ready? Let's do it. In your opinion, what are some of the biggest risks to widespread EV adoption? We know in many markets, it's that curve is going vertical. Others, not as much, not as quickly. So is this a given in all these markets? And what do you think is uh, the biggest risk to widespread EV adoption? Yes. The first thing is, we've got to remember the goal is not widespread EV adoption. The goal is net zero and zero emission transportation, right? Counts for about a third of the total carbon emissions. So I think we kind of say that up front. And the second part as well, you know, what do we mean by widespread EV adoption? If we think about risks to EVs in general, at the moment, I think the biggest thing is cost, price point for that car. I think yesterday or earlier this week, Faraday Futures, they just released their EV ticket price, 250,000 euros. Not very accessible. Not very accessible. Obviously, that's a far cry from the prices of you know Tesla, Nissan Leaf, Maki, whatever they might be, but still they're much higher uh, than a nice car. And I think that's a big blocker for anybody who's looking to make that transition. Yeah, I think you see two sides of that. You see the cost and these vehicle OEMs, they consistently talk about how expensive it is to produce these vehicles. I know from an American context, I think it's pretty similar in a European context. Average vehicle price in America, $47,000. Average EV price in America, $65,000, So there's just that premium that's still there that just makes it out of reach, even when you factor in a lot of these credits, that just needs to come down eventually. Absolutely. And I think you're right with the grants, You know, even if you have a rebate, you're still not going to get that back for 12 months' time. I think you know prices will start to come into parity somewhere between 2025, 2027. Elon Musk started to talk about the next model, kind of unveiled it in one of his uh, investor presentations. And it's rumored that that's going to be one of the lower price point vehicles that comes out, something in you know, around twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars I think it's kind of a shame. The other, uh, just about a month ago, Chevy announced they're discontinuing the Bolt. Mm. And that was maybe a $20,000 vehicle and it was affordable. It was nice, a compact size. And they said, our margins aren't great on this. We're done with this at the end of 2023. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, yeah. what are we doing here? So, but, and then uh, maybe one final comment as well. So if we talk about price being a biggest challenge to widespread EV adoption for an individual, maybe one of the ways to help funnel that into individual countries, we see a lot in Belgium, we see a lot in Netherlands, is essentially corporations transitioning their fleet to EVs. And then those can ultimately move into the secondhand market. We see that as a big kind of funnel coming in. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Next question. Kevin, you'll like this one. Why is there such a disparity in EV adoption between the USA and Europe? Excellent question. That's multi-layered and as complex as America is itself. I think there's a few reasons. And I've looked at this and I think we've talked about it quite a bit. Last year in Europe, EV sales share reached 32%. Now it's higher in Norway, right? Slower in Italy, but average across Europe was 32%. In America, it was 8%. So there's that disparity we're talking about. I think 
first, there's been a kind of a lack of major incentive push or unified incentives across the country. There's been the uh, $7,500 tax credit, but like you mentioned, that wasn't at the point of sale. State by state, it depends. Previously, the incentives, they capped at 200,000 vehicles for an automaker. So that kind of dampens demand a little bit right there. The second problem, like we talked about, is that profit problem. These automakers are not seeing a good profit, a good return on these EVs right now. So they're just still going to focus on the SUVs, the trucks, these high margin vehicles, because they're a business and they want to uh, make a profit. And so it's just not quite there yet in terms of the, the profitability. So they're not quite shifting gear. They are now, but they haven't in the last five years. And I think there is kind of a third, which is a little bit more subjective or intangible. And it's that kind of politicization of car culture. We don't need to get into the politics of America. That's a whole nother podcast. But driving an electric vehicle really said something about your identity. It was often associated with liberals and, and people that voted a certain way on the coast, etc. It was, oh, wow, you care about the environment enough to be a first adopter of an electric vehicle. Well, that's a certain type of person that does that in the center of the country or different areas. I'm going to keep driving a gas guzzler. And I don't want to be caught dead driving one of those electric vehicles. Vehicles, that's for the latte sipping people on the coast. So that's changing now a little bit as Ford rolls out the F-150 Lightning. That is the Ford F-150 is the biggest selling pickup in America for like the last 40 years. They're now electrifying that. So let's hope that kind of spurs a, a new group of people to say, hey, this is a pretty awesome electric pickup. And I think this does everything I need to do. But again, it's going to take some time. And hopefully with the new bills that have been passed, and there's a new kind of sensitization and, and push towards accelerating EV adoption. But again, it's a, it's a long road ahead. Definitely. I think also it's interesting, a lot of the uh, reports that are published will always compare USA, Europe, and China. And of course, as we know, very different markets. Europe itself has real disparities in the level of adoption. Netherlands, Norway, two of the major leaders, other markets. Spain is considered a, a lagging country, but even that's hitting 8 to 10% EV sell share. Is that not the same in the US? You know, I think we always talk about USA as a whole, but can you tell us a little bit about the difference between states and how much disparity is there? Yeah. So the USA is also a collection of states like Europe. <laughs> united. But how united is Europe? That's also another question too. So, uh, or unified when it comes to the regulatory environment. Not very is the answer. Yes. But uh, again, it's like, you could call California the Norway of America, not due to its climate, but <laughs> California's climate's better. But in terms of its adoption, but again, it's the front runner in the country. 25% of new vehicle sales are electric vehicles versus Norway, as you said, 90% probably will hit almost like 100 this year. The bottom 40 states in America have a 5% adoption rate. And that's like behind the the slow, you know, European laggards. So again, there's that disparity within the, the country, just like there is in Europe, but we're talking kind of orders of magnitude different. Yes. Awesome. Cool. cool. Question number three, Mike, you finally decided to take the plunge. You're going to adopt an EV. You're going to buy an EV. There's the vehicle itself. You've got smart charging. You've got roaming. You've got all the CO2 that you're going to save. It all sounds great. But what are your best tips for when you finally take that leap from gas to electric, what tips do you have for that new EV owner? Great question. So I ride a bike. <laughs> so for me, it would be going from a bike to an EV. <laughs> but the big leap. The, the big leap. That's the major leap. Now, but when I think about it seriously, a few friends who've recently purchased and drive now a Tesla, and the conversation that I always have with them was, what was it that actually pushed you over the edge of purchasing an EV? And one of the biggest things that comes up really is, 
the experience. It is a completely different experience to getting into a nice vehicle. You could even start to heat up the vehicle from your mobile phone, for example, before you get in the car. It offers various different ways of creating more of a connected experience into the user. And I think that's something that OEMs definitely recognize. You know, How can they get closer to their customers? How can they provide additional services basically through the vehicle and not just having it as a one-time purchase? I think one of the other parts is there is now far more choice that's basically available out in the market. You've mentioned price parity, you've mentioned the average price, you know, some of the upper end cars, yes, they're expensive, but we're really starting to, to see it come down. One of the earlier Mitsubishi EVs that came out in 2009, you know, I think that fetches maybe 15,000 or less. And there's another vehicle that's recently come out. I think it's costing in around 16, 17,000 and you can basically custom design and build the individual parts. So it's all different types of plastic. You kind of create your own Lego car and then basically drive that off. So much, much broader range, much competition between different OEMs. I think another part is there's a lot of vehicles now funneling in from large EV fleets, whether it's leasing companies, whether it's enterprises themselves coming into the secondhand market as well. Before this uh, podcast, we were just having a bit of a discussion about what the secondhand car market looks like. And maybe it's a bit of a kind of tangent from making the leap basically from an ICE to an EV car. We think about price parity, think about battery quality that would also be fed into the price. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in secondhand car market, but also second life battery market. And I think also the other thing is availability of parts. There are far less components in an EV vehicle than there are in an ICE car. And also, as a result, much cheaper to go through any repairs at any time and a much less complex powertrain. So a few different things. Cool, cool. Next question. Yes, the reason why governments across various different countries, states, wherever it might be, there is a huge push to try to transition the entire fleet to EVs. And the reason is because they're a zero emission vehicle. But we have to remember there's a manufacturing process to create not just the vehicle parts themselves, but a big part of the emissions when manufacturing an EV come from the battery. And I think it's important to have a discussion and it's great that we've had this question come in actually. So aren't EV batteries really resource heavy? And how do you think mining those resources will affect the future of the industry? Yeah, it's an important question. The short answer is yes, they are emission heavy. The mining of these batteries is emission heavy and can be dirty. And there are concerns around the supply chain when you're talking about nickel and cobalt and and lithium from regions like the Congo and from Indonesia and Australia and everything. And it's certainly a concern and something that needs to be addressed. But in terms of from an emissions point of view, even factoring in the high amount of emissions that are required to pull this from the ground and then send it to a battery refiner and then they refine it and they put it in a battery and it's put into a vehicle, even taking all that into consideration, the total emissions emitted during the lifetime of a vehicle, even for EVs, still remain below virtually every internal combustion engine vehicle. There's some problems with it and there's emissions involved in it, but there's going to be emissions involved in any sort of fuel, right? A lot of governments call zero emissions vehicles. It's kind of a misnomer, in my opinion. They're not zero emission vehicles, but it also takes quite a few emissions to drill oil and pull it out of the ground and then ship that <laughs> to where it needs to go and then put it into your vehicle. So I think it's a cop-out that a lot of people try to use. I think that the sourcing of these materials, we're seeing so much investment going into it all over the world. And I saw a report the other day said that the amount of factory announcements and the capacity that we expect to come online will be easily enough to meet the demand by 2030 because there's just 
a gold rush, a nickel rush, a cobalt rush, whatever you want to call it, because there's a just huge opportunity because this shift, this transition to electric vehicles, it's well underway. Do we need to be more vigilant and do we, companies need to make sure that their supply chains are, are ethical? Yeah, that absolutely. But that's in, in every single industry, right? Yeah, I think it's a great point. Yes, batteries are needed for EVs, but they're also needed in a much broader sense of the energy transition. A lot of this Renewable energies basically require more storage facilities at the home or even off-grid connections, whatever that might be. In Spain, for example, you see these energy communities pop up where essentially a collection of different homes and houses will have solar panels on the roof and they are collectively owned and then they'll have a central storage facility. And of course, that requires a battery, right? High power to kind of put it. So I think the other part of the discussion is, yes, we definitely realize that mining's required. I think what's also very important is how are we actually using those batteries and are we using them to their, I guess, best or most efficient use case? For example, the volume or the range of a EV at the moment now, you know, 300, 400, 500 kilometers, we keep wanting to pack bigger, more dense batteries into vehicles. I and mean, do, do we really need that? Is that really what we want to do? We want to also make sure that we're electrifying other modes of transport. So it's also a little bit about how we're advancing technology to create denser batteries that has much more efficient use of these precious materials and these precious metals, lithium, cobalt, iron, et cetera. And then I guess the second part, which you, you haven't yet kind of come on to, how do you think it's going to affect the future of the industry? How mining will affect the future of the industry? I think there are so many companies that just realize there's a massive opportunity right now and that are really investing heavily in this space and recognize that the demand is only growing. And if they get in now and you start to invest and, and open these mines now, you will have a pretty long runway of demand from vehicle manufacturers all over the world. And not even just vehicles, like you mentioned, it's going to be so many different types of vehicles that need batteries. Our future is electric. And electricity requires batteries That's to, to store that energy. I'm optimistic that there are enough entrepreneurial people and companies out there that understand what is necessary and see the transition that's happening that will be able to meet the demand and, and much more. Definitely. I guess one move that OEMs might start to take is actually ownership of the supply so they can really start to starve out competition, own, and maybe also generate a secondary source of revenue from their, from their primary platform. You are seeing more vertical integration as automakers realize the importance of securing that supply chain. You're also seeing, interestingly, I think it was Chile that is going to like nationalize their mines or something of that sort because they're like, this is going to be incredibly valuable. I don't know the exact terms of it, but they're basically saying, these mines, they're ours. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we'll see how that plays out. If you see more kind of nationalism from countries, it's going to be really fascinating to see how this plays out from country to country. 100% will play into the political route. Like Australia has one of the largest lithium deposits and that's going to be a huge export for them. All right, Mike, next question. I keep reading about grid connection problems. You do? I do. I think my reading diet might be different than most. I don't think Rocio reads about grid connection problems as often as I do, but uh, <laughs> I, I happen to. It happens to find its way into my feed. What is going on there, and how do these grid connection problems impact charging infrastructure development? Oh, boy, that's a big one. I'd say this is a conversation that comes up in every single country that we're expanding into. and. The basis of the problem is whenever you have a new building, you have to submit an application to the local distribution system operators uh, or DSOs in order to get the correct amps allocated to that site. So let's say you want to set up a multi-story building. Of course, you need electricity to be able to set on the lights, put in the car park lights, be able to run people's laptops, computers, all this kind of stuff. It's exactly the same when you want to set up a charging station, regardless of what it is. If it's a 7 kilowatt, 11 kilowatts, of course, you need power being supplied to that area. And a lot of car parks don't have 
sufficient amps allocated to it. So what's happening now is DSOs are being flooded with many, many requests for allocating amps to these different sites, not just rural, but also urban, some of them in you know remote locations, for example, where it might take basically a whole team to rewire and get that connection into the site itself before electricity can even be transported. And the permitting process isn't set up to be able to support this. It's based on high priority requests when we're building a new city or a new area or a new housing development, not necessarily for hundreds of different charging locations. So the application process itself is long. It could take somewhere between nine months. I think in Denmark, the average now is 14 months. In Spain, it can take up to two years. And then also, this is maybe in a little bit on the side, the grid connection is a challenge itself. But then, of course, there needs to be various other types of planning permissions. So you need to get your approval from the local environment agency. If you want to put it by the beach, then you have to get the Coast Guard's approval. There are various different steps that they need to go through. And the impact this is having on the industry is charge points can be rolled out as quickly as they like. But we're seeing charge points come online now that were actually installed over a year ago. And as a result, that's creating a significant delay in actually rolling this out to be able to support um, EVs. And I guess one of the risks that we didn't mention earlier from the first question, of course, is availability of these charge points, availability of installed capacity, which is how the European Commission is trying to regulate or try to determine how much funding is required for each individual country, depending on the ultimate fleet size of the EVs. So massive problem. We had a conversation, actually, we did a, a site visit to Madrid last week, and there was a consultancy company that works specifically within this this area. And I, I think it's definitely safe to call this an emerging niche. And one of them is advising DSOs how to reevaluate their budgeting process to account for the increase in these, you know, very, I guess, much smaller, lower priority, but much higher volume requests. And also how to essentially provide kind of intermediate connectivity using local or nearby connections to provide maybe 50% of the amps that's actually required. I think there's something like I read seven to eight thousand charging points in Spain sitting there. They're disconnected. They're there and they're just waiting in a backlog. You see this in the UK. I think they just don't have enough people to process the applications. In America, there's so many. The grid is hugely backed up. They're just people are installing solar projects, wind projects, electric vehicle charging infrastructure. I think in like the New Jersey connector. I don't even know the exact uh, name of the regulator, but they just paused for like the next couple of years. They said, we just need to work through our backlog and no new applications for the next two years. And you're just like, wow. So the title of the New York Times article was like, oh, you've got that green project. Great. Good luck plugging it in. And so you just see this playing out in every country, every market. It's a shame, right? Because and, and we see EV sales in every report, they smash the expectation. And then you see the electric vehicle charging infrastructure that does not smash through expectations. In fact, it's usually lagging behind what they predict. So you're seeing this widening gap that is a little bit worrisome. But again, when it comes to permitting and regulators, they have their processes and let's hope that they speed that up. But at the end of the day, it's them who decide when and how they're going to connect it. Definitely. Whenever we're talking about a massive global change like this, of course, there are going to be big obstacles that we need to get over. But it does also create new innovative ways for people to try to set up charging points and also how to manufacture. So for example, one of the manufacturers called Freewire essentially sets up high power charging stations and it only requires 20 amps. And in the bottom of it, it has a set of individual transformers that will essentially mean you don't have to go through these large permitting processes for a 350 kilowatt charger or whatever it might be, they can actually circumvent that and get a lower amount of amps kind of allocated to it. So we start to see some of these solutions popping up, which is fantastic. Are they popping up quick enough? You know, really difficult to say. So I'm also quite hopeful that, yes, 
companies, organizations, individuals will also find ways to continue to increase the rate of installation and maybe go around this. Maybe a startup idea for us, software for regulators to make the seamless transition more seamless. It could be a grid connection management system, inbound requests, volume of amps allocated. Jokes aside, though, we did talk about this idea, didn't we, a while ago? So saying, wouldn't it be great to have a data set and a dashboard of cities that will show you essentially where the highest volume of traffic is going and then also where there is sufficient amps allocated to be able to cater for setting up 22 kilowatt charge points or, or 30 kind of kilowatt charge points, for example. That would be a huge valuable data set you could roll out to charge point operators to businesses who are basically trying to set this up to governments municipalities and also gives them a little bit of time to get ahead i don't know what the title of that data set would be called if anybody wants to give it a go with us get in touch (laughs) okay so i knew this question was going to come in and i think when i first started in the mobility industry it was definitely a thing i now kind of question the actual reality of it, and I think it's a lingering sentiment amongst people who are about to make that shift. I think it's something that uh, comes up quite a lot. But anyway, I'll, I'll tell you the question. You ready for the question? Listen. I'm ready for it. Okay. Can you guess what it is? I have an idea. What is range anxiety, and is it real? Range anxiety, Mike, is a commonly used term to refer to the feeling that current and prospective EV buyers feel about their vehicle. The amount of distance it can travel on a single charge and the available charging options in your vicinity. So essentially, someone might be anxious that they will end up stranded on the side of the road with a drained battery. People are anxious whether there's sufficient battery to get them from point A to point B. So I think there is an element of familiarity here where we deal with, you know, dead batteries on our computer, laptops, phones every day, you know, and then all of a sudden you're stuck on a flight and your phone's dead and and you have to sit there and complete silence and stuck with your own thoughts and no one likes to be like no one likes to do that oh wow that's a deep take sorry on that got anxiety question but I love- <laughs> <laughs> then you get like yeah then you get real anxiety i love this you came for an ev podcast you're left with much more <laughs> <laughs> but we you know we've become so accustomed to gas stations being readily available obviously you still have to go travel to them so as a phenomenon this is definitely a real thing people list it you know repeatedly in their top five or top three reasons why they're putting off buying an electric vehicle the better question i think is whether it's justified in certain countries there are fewer charging options high power charging options we know the laggards in europe greece italy spain they don't have a lot of public charging stations along the roads america it's the same thing it's a little bit more justified in those places but to that I would say, how far do you drive in a day? Most people can get to work and back, the grocery store and back, school and back on a single charge. Like, trust me, I know if people are waiting for a longer range battery, like for to make sure they can cover that long distance road trip, fine. But again, when you're on a road trip, you stop at the gas station, the petrol station, you stop at the rest stop. You have to stop anyway, especially if you have kids. I don't have kids, but I was a kid once and we had to stop. And so if you have to do that, you have to charge anyway. And so for those couple of road trips each year, I don't think it's worth delaying that purchase when 80, 90, 95% of your journeys will be covered and you can charge at home and charging is propping up at workplaces as well. So like, there's going to be so many more opportunities and I don't think range anxiety is ultimately justified. And I think it's important to remember, a full tank of petrol will only carry you petrol. I have to say petrol because I have a a British co-host, I would say. A full tank of petrol or gas will only carry you 200 to 400 miles. So 
battery capacity is reaching these levels as well, but also there's charging availability. And I think as charging options proliferate and batteries reach new levels of capacity, people will learn and they will adjust. And I have full confidence that they can transition to an electric vehicle and uh, not get stranded on the side of the road. Yes. Cool. Next question, Mike. What do you think will be the main difference between the charging experience today and five to 10 years from now? Yes, also a good question. When I think about, it's maybe also interesting to reflect on where it was maybe five years ago, right? I think uh, EVs have been around for a long time. I guess maybe they started really kind of to pop up around, I don't know, 2008, 2009. That's when we started to see the Tesla models come online and also a bit of hype around some smaller battery range EV cars. And I kind of think about it a little bit like, you know, the team development model, which is about you're forming and then you're storming and then you're norming. And I kind of feel like we're exiting this forming stage in certain markets and entering storming. Tesla's opened their superchargers. We were having a conversation about this in the US. They're very much ahead of the game, but different charging ports. So you have to have an adapter to be able to fit onto other cars. Cables aren't long enough. Parking bays aren't big enough. An F-150 would take up two of those there's these problems with grid connections. Now there's a high volume that want to go in, fast chargers, business chargers that would be set up at a workplace, for example. We're really starting to get into setting up a high volume of charge points. You know, and we have to do it very, very quickly to try to reach these, these um, ZEV goals. So I think in maybe five to 10 years from now, depending on the country we're talking about, let's take France as an example. So they're a country that is doing pretty well in its sales share, 25% EV sales share. They have a good volume of charge points that's now essentially out there, 100,000 or so, but also massive market. They have to triple, maybe quadruple that volume of charge points by 2030. And so how will that change the experience? First thing, availability, essentially. The second part as well, eventually it becomes business as usual. People just use it as a day-to-day activity. One thing that I find that could be very interesting is the onset of other types of charging. Wireless charging, for example, are there other ways that are perhaps more efficient for individuals whilst you have the momentum of the vehicle to be able to charge that car? Some ideas that come out about trying to install wireless charging across major motorways. Perhaps that's a great idea for these longer distance travels for heavy duty vehicles, for lorries, for trucks that are trying to distribute that across different areas. In India, for example, battery swapping, it's it's a real big emerging industry there. How is that also going to affect people's choice, basically, of a vehicle? Those types of technologies that could come up could also kind of really transform how we're going to do it. And then the final thing, how it would affect the charging experience, I think it's also going to affect our transportation experience. So that's what I think. Forming, storming, Norming. Yes. All right. So, Kevin, if you could fix something about the EV industry by just swinging your magic wand, what would it be? So, if I had a magic wand and I could wave it and fix anything, it would simply be to accelerate the speed with which everything happens. That's the faster transition for automakers that we discussed previously uh, with more EV models coming online, lower prices, more options for consumers. It's faster adoption. It's more charging infrastructure, faster permitting for sites, faster connections, more charging points, more thriving CPO businesses that Monta can sell to. Things just need to move faster. We don't have time. We know the climate crisis is is everywhere and it's getting worse year on year. And so this, this acceleration, this transition just needs to happen so much faster. That's what I would use. What about you, Mike? Nice. We talked about the grid connection problems. And if I think about EV adoption requires sufficient charging infrastructure, rolling out charging infrastructure requires the right allocation of electricity to all these individual sites. So if that's a huge bottleneck, 
we know we want to solve it. We're also completely forgetting alternatives to using grid connections to being able to charge these vehicles. However, there are still a lot of restrictions for individuals, not just to set them up. Obviously, they're expensive, but also reselling that back into the grid or reselling it back to your neighbor or using a different storage facility and really starting to set up these kind of off-grid or micro-grid communities. So a big thing for me would be deregulating that entire demand side and basically allowing individuals and consumers to participate in the energy market so that it can also relieve the pressure of grid connections. Next, your question. Mike, what is one of the gnarliest charge point or charge station installs that you've seen and why? Let's define gnarliest first. You can take it, take it whatever direction you want. Up for interpretation. Up for interpretation. Take whatever direction you want to. Okay. I'm going to interpret Gnarliest in two ways. Gnarliest being like pretty extreme, sketchy installation, right? And I think Gnarliest being also, I don't know, I'm thinking about snowboarding, right? When you do like a double 360 backflip. That was gnarly. That was gnarly. Like then it's like super cool and it's something that's not necessarily been seen before. Okay. So I'll take it in those two ways. I think most impressive installs that I've read about is by Shell Recharge on the island of Iona in Scotland. as a population of over 100 people, so electricity demand is not super high. But in 2019, they installed a 50 kilowatt DC fast charger at the island's only petrol station uh, to provide any owners on that island if they're also traveling back and forth with a reliable charging option. And as I mentioned, it's impressive because it's an off-grid island, so it's not connected to any mainland power grids. And instead, what Shell did was create a kind of mixture, a hybrid solar and wind power system that could generate sufficient electricity for the charging station to run. So it has four or five kilowatt wind turbines, 10 kilowatt solar panel array. That's connected to a battery storage system and it provides consistent power supply for the charging station. I mean, how cool is that? We're talking about grid connection problems. These types of setups, I feel like are going to be part of the experience in the future. The fact that we can't hook up like normal charge stations or charge points all around various countries exactly. and, and they're like out there on an island with a yeah. hundred people and like, we'll figure it out. Exactly. And you know, fair enough. I think maybe it's a little bit ambitious with the solar panels in Scotland, but the wind turbines definitely, you know, that's going to be generating sufficient. I'd love to see the power generation. <laughs> <laughs> the mix there has got to be heavily, heavily in favor of the wind. I heavily imagine. wind. I think Shell's going to be like, we definitely didn't. The solar, <laughs> the solar panels were incredibly optimistic. <laughs> Yeah, so that's one of the gnarlies. And then maybe the other one, the world's fastest charge point is installed in Norway. Oh. Shock. One of the most advanced countries. How fast is it? EV adoption. So I don't think that necessarily every single car would be able to take this much power, but it can provide 100 kilometers of range in just three minutes. So it's an ABB model, the Terra 360, maximum output 360 kilowatts, and of course can charge up to two vehicles, fully charging both of them in 15 minutes or less. Do we need that? Maybe not, but it delivers a very similar experience to fueling your vehicle, right? Which takes three minutes or less. So those are mine. So final question. This is quite a good one, actually, quite a fun one. So Kevin, one of our listeners wants to understand, you know, if we were to start up our own CPO business, what would it be called? What does CPO mean, Mike? Yes. CPO means charge point operator. And I would typify it by anybody who would set up, run, manage, a portfolio of charge points, whether it's five charge points in an Aldi parking lot, whether it is charging stations at an airport, for example, whoever is running the administration of those, a charge point operator. Right. So yeah, we talk with a lot of them on a daily basis all over Europe, all over the world. And in all of these discussions, and you know, I love to speak with people in this industry. It's great uh, to get the opportunity to hear how charging is developing in so many different markets, but do they use the same words to describe their businesses? It is always some combination of 
charge me up, EV chargers are us, car chargers. It's some variation of that. We could just take you through our internal uh, list of customers and conversations we're having. And it's like a Mad Lib of like, choose your 10 different <laughs> words to describe charging. You're going to run out of patents eventually. <laughs> I, got to, like, I swear, <laughs> but then I did come up with a new one. And then you see some of the same ones in some countries even. So what I say that to put it into context. I want something a little creative. I don't want something that's just going to blend into what we call the sea of sameness. I don't want something that has charge. I don't want something that has EV. I don't want it to be blue or green, right? Rocio knows how the brands are in our industry. So I would go with coils, not oils. And um, you sure it's coils, not hydrogen? Coils, not oils, funnily enough, was actually my um, recommendation for the name of the show, which got kiboshed by... Uh, people in this room that don't need to be named. Um, but uh, but if I... There's only two people in this room. <laughs> so ultimately, the, if we can't use it for this show, we can use it for my future ChargePoint operator business. What about you? Well, you went through Charger Up, Charges R Us, and I'm going through my list of businesses' names here, and I'm just crossing them off as you're doing it. <laughs> no, I would think about maybe the question that talks about five to 10 years now, what's the charging experience going to be like? And I'd want to build something that's designed for the future. I think if I set up a charge point operating business, I would also want to diversify that at some point. So what are the type of electricity, storage facilities, microgrids, whatever it might be, would I also manage as part of that business? Smart businessman. You're already thinking ahead to how you're going to diversify before you've even got your charging operation off the ground. Hey, I've got to deal with permitting processes so far. I've got to think what else I can do. (laughs) You might be waiting waiting quite a while with the permitting process to get this off the ground. Exactly. I'll stick with solar panels. (laughs) Well, you know, we talk about here at Monta, the Monta shop ends up like not being a significant source of revenue, but we got to make a little bit of money there. And we're like, should we be a merch company? Like, I think... A spin-off e-commerce business. Spin-off e-commerce business coming soon. So I think, yeah, going somewhere a little bit broader. And it reminds me, I was thinking about a company like Uber, you know, their strategy to never have or to have taxis basically as reliable as running water. And we think about electricity also, we flicker the switch. <laughs> that sounds like a DJ Khaled song. <laughs> flicker the switch. No, anyway, uh, so it's a what, sorry? Rocio doesn't even know who DJ Khaled is. Oh, shit. Okay. I ordered my wings from him the other day. You know, you you can buy wings from DJ Khaled. I also don't like DJ Khaled, just for the record. No, no. So thinking about, you know, Uber, I would also want the charging services or energy supply services to also be that. So my CPA business would be called PowerTap. You can turn the tap on, electricity's there, as long as we've gone through the permitting process. So the tap might not work for a while. (laughs) PowerTap would be up and running with charge points in 14 months' time. (laughs) Power tapped out. I think that uh, does it for our questions here today. How are we feeling? Yeah, feel good. Nice. I think that does it for this episode of In Between Charges. Uh, it was really great to answer some listener submitted questions about a wide range of issues in our beloved industry. That is fascinating. Next month, we will return to our normal cadence and plan of having another person on the show that we get to interrogate and help us understand and decode our industry. Definitely. And also, we'd love to hear from you. If there's some topics today you want to dive into or you want us to dive into further or we want to get some guest speakers on, we'd love to hear from you. So either send us an email or comment below and also remember, rate us five stars. <laughs>